0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: Oh, good afternoon, Seattle. You're listening to the House of Mystery right here on KKNW. And joining us today in the studio, we have got Rick Delano, producer and writer of the movie The Principal. Welcome. Welcome, Rick. Well, thank you very much for
0: having me. It's great to be here.
1: Um, for the listeners that aren't familiar with this, you and I have been chatting about this now for a couple of days. Um, what is your background?
0: Well, my background is essentially in the music and film business. Um, uh, as a producer and both, uh, I sort of uh, fell into this project because I encountered a internet challenge back, oh, customers been ten years ago now, where you know this guy put up a thousand dollar reward for anybody who could provide a repeatable, crucial experiment that directly measured the motion of the earth around the sun, and I thought, well, gosh, I could use a thousand dollars, you know, who so could <laughs> uh, and, and of course, it was so cleverly designed. And what happened was. It became my, you know, my habit to go in there and check in because there were some NASA scientists who were posting and you know, people were coming up with these elaborate uh, uh, claims to the prize. And I would read one and I'd say, oh, that's got to be the winner. And I'd come back the next day and the guy had just blown it apart. And it suddenly began to sink in, what this guy was trying to get across, something that very few people in the world understand. and It is absolutely true. No experiment in the history of science has ever been able to directly measure the universally assumed 30 kilometer per second orbital motion of Earth around the Sun. And they tried for centuries. I mean, this has been going on for centuries. Every time an experiment would be designed to try and directly measure this motion, for centuries the puzzling result kept coming back zero velocity of the Earth. And what very few people understand is that at the end of the 19th century, these puzzling results required the complete reimagination of physics from the ground up. All of physics up to the beginning of the 20th century had been based essentially on, uh, on the incredible work of Isaac Newton, who had uh, constructed a world system based on Gravitation and his m- equations for mechanics. And these were stupendously accurate. I mean, we were able to predict all kinds of things because of this stupendous breakthrough by Newton of universal gravitation. Mm-hmm. Except they couldn't understand why. I mean, Newton told us that obviously the Earth has to go around the Sun because the Sun's really, 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 really big and the Earth is really, 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 really small. And it just, you know, it, his equations made it absolutely obvious that the Earth had to be going around the sun. But every time the experimenters tried to develop a test that would directly measure this motion, they kept coming up with this paradoxical result of zero. And at the end of the 19th century, this became an actual crisis in physics. Uh, And it was the Swiss patent clerk, Albert Einstein, Mm-hmm. who ultimately came along and said, okay, I can fix this for you. I can explain to you why all of your experiments are showing that the Earth is not orbiting the sun, but you're going to have to toss Newton overboard. Uh-oh. And you're going to have to toss every single thing that you have learned about electromagnetism, every single thing, the Maxwell equations, they're all going to have to go. Because i got news for you. There is no way to measure absolute motion in physics. You cannot do it. There is no difference between two bodies moving together at the same relative speed, so that there's no acceleration between them, and the state of being at rest. You cannot distinguish between what Einstein calls inertial motion and the state of being at rest. So what Einstein did and was brilliant. He said, There is no state. Of being at rest. Nothing in the universe is at rest. And while your experiments have been showing that there's no motion of the Earth around the Sun, the reason for that is that, well, you see, your instrument, your measuring arms on your instrument, are being shrunk in the direction of the Earth's motion, just enough to make it look like we're standing still. Isn't that interesting? Now, when this was first advanced, it was laughed at. I mean, you can go back and read what some of the leading physicists around the turn of the century were saying about this notion of clocks running at different speeds and rods shrinking and the speed of light being the same, whether you're moving or standing still. All these things were extremely difficult for the great physicists of that time to accept. But nonetheless, ultimately, they were accepted. And the reason they were accepted was because, in the end, there was only one alternative to accepting them. And that alternative was that the Earth was not, in fact, going around the Sun. So as difficult as the strange new ideas of, uh, of, the, of Einstein's relativity was to accept, it was much easier ultimately to accept them than to accept the completely stupendous notion that the Earth wasn't going around the Sun. All
1: right, let, let's, let's rewind because I think I understand what Einstein was saying. Mm-hmm. That there's no way to tell the difference between an object at rest or two objects moving at the same speed in the same direction. Correct. Because you have nothing to compare it with. That is exactly right. If, if you and I are moving down two lanes in the same type of cars that were traveling at the same exact speed, To me, you look like you're standing still.
0: Exactly, you are right on.
1: Oh wow! Okay,
0: this was the exact uh, breakthrough of Einstein, and and now he had to extend it beyond that, though, because remember, back at the just only 120 years ago, uh, if you were in a graduate program in any leading institution in the world and you were taking a degree in physics, you believed in something called. The ether. If you didn't believe in it, you weren't going to get your degree. Now, the ether was absolutely essential for the stupendously successful electromagnetism equations of uh, James Clerk Maxwell. There had to be an ether, you see, because light was a wave, and -hmm. something had to be waving. Uh, It's difficult to conceive of a wave in the ocean if there isn't any water to wave. true. Uh, the, The physicists at this time believed that there was a a substance, if you will. Like dark matter. Uh, Yeah, what dark matter is today, exactly. Uh, But since light was conceived to be propagating as a waveform, something had to be waving, and they called this the ether. And the physics at the time assumed that, okay, if you've got this ether everywhere, and the Earth is sort of plowing along through this ether at 30 kilometers per second around the sun, well, they reasoned, quite reasonably, Well, you know, if I shoot a beam of light directly into the direction of our motion, and then I shoot another beam perpendicular to that first one, and I shoot them down a known distance, and then I have them both bounce off a mirror, and I come back and I recombine the beams, I ought to be able to measure the phase difference between those two beams, because the one's going to be impeded by the ether more than the other. And I ought to be able to measure those two beams The phase difference between them will tell me exactly how much the Earth moved through the ether during the time those beams were in transit. Made perfect sense. Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, it it does. The problem is, it kept coming up with a. Every time that experiment was run, it was run with increasing sophistication, for centuries. Every time that experiment was run, the result was unambiguously the same. The Earth is not going around the Sun, and so we had this choice to either toss all of physics as it had been constituted up to 1805 or admit that the earth wasn't orbiting the sun. So the first choice was made. Relativity was adopted. And the problem here is this. Um, Einstein required a couple of things to be true if relativity was true. Number one, that first thing you said, there can be no way to distinguish between unaccelerated linear motion, or what they call inertial motion, and rest. There can be no difference between the state of being at rest that we can measure and the state of being in unaccelerated motion, just like the two cars on the road. To those two people, uh, it looks like you're relatively standing still, and you, 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 you assume, Einstein assumes, that this is a fundamental principle of nature, that there is no way, no experiment that we can do that would distinguish between a being at rest in an absolute sense and being in unaccelerated linear motion. So this is the first assumption that he made. But the problem is this. Special relativity only applies in situations where we can ignore the effects of gravity. And if I wanted to be... There we go. And and, and that's
1: where I'm getting. I'm coming to
0: that. Yeah, but here's the problem. I mean, if you really want to be completely rigorously truthful here, the condition of moving in a straight line without being affected in any way by gravity is a condition that applies nowhere in the physical universe. There is no place in the physical universe in which those conditions are met. But conceptually, uh, Einstein argued, uh, we can ignore the negligible effects of a gravitational field Over a certain uh, volume of space, and during those types of situations, special relativity applies. But what about the rest of the universe, where you can't ignore the effects of gravity? Even the Earth. I mean, we are not only told that the Earth is orbiting the Sun once per year, and there are accelerations and decelerations uh, in between, you know, the apogee and the perigee of our orbit—the closest point to the Sun and furthest away. There are accelerations there. But much more importantly, we are told that the Earth is rotating on its axis once every 24 hours, and that is a very significant acceleration. Um, uh, any rotational motion, uh, nonlinear uh, motion, is treated as an acceleration in, uh, in Newtonian physics. And uh, this became a real problem for Einstein, because the solution that he came up with to, uh, to adopt special relativity it only applied in the case of linear, non-accelerated motion. What if we're rotating? What if there's accelerations between the Earth and maybe some distant star? Uh, he had to come up with a way to generalize his theory so that it applied to situations where accelerations, uh, what they call boosts, and ro- rotations uh, would apply. And that is the difference between special relativity and general Relativity and here's the supreme irony. Special relativity got rid of the ether. It said there was no ether. That's why you weren't seeing any interference fringes on your experiments because there was no ether that was going to impede the light beam. Well, special relativity, uh, you know, banishes the ether. General relativity brings it back. General, special relativity says the speed of light is constant no matter what <laughs> for all observers in inertial frames no matter how fast they're moving. If you and I were in two cars moving at 99.999% of the speed of light and we shot a flashlight beam out the front, it would go the speed of light faster, not 0.1% faster, but it would go the speed of light faster. So these were the postulates, the mind-bending postulates of relativity. Now the problem is, what if we can't ignore gravity? What general relativity says is that, yes, it is impossible to say that light speed is constant, Because we observe light to bend around the sun. I mean, obviously, if gravity is affecting light, then the speed of light is not constant in the presence of gravitational fields. So now we come full circle. Special relativity was advanced to explain why no experiment could demonstrate the motion of the Earth around the sun. General relativity comes along and says, guess what?
1: We're making special exceptions.
0: Yeah, my physics works just as well if you consider the Earth to be at rest and the universe to be rotating around it, as if you assume the universe to be at rest and the Earth going around the Sun. The physics works either way, and this is where it gets interesting. He had no choice but to do that mm-hmm. because it became very clear as soon as you know they started measuring uh, the eclipses. Uh, Eddington um, uh, uh, verified the predictions. They say he verified the predictions of general relativity by measuring the bending. Of light around the sun during that eclipse. Well, if the light is being bent by the sun, that means it's being bent by gravitational forces. That means it's just changing the speed of light uh, as it's observed on Earth. So Einstein had no choice but to generalize his theory and to say there is no experiment that can ever detect whether the Earth is going around the sun or the sun is going around the earth. And he actually says this many times in public work. It's just a choice of coordinate system. It's just as true to say the sun is at rest and the earth moves as it is to say that the earth is at rest and the sun moves. Now, anybody who's got a Ph.D. in physics knows that. Essentially, nobody who doesn't knows that. And the reason is they want to have their cake and eat it, too. Uh, they want everyone to believe that it has been absolutely established the Earth is nothing special, it's going around the Sun, and physics proved this back in Newton's day. Well, guess what? Physics didn't prove it back in Newton's day. What was proven by Einstein was that if we accept Einstein's theory, it is, you must admit that it is exactly as accurate to say the Sun is at rest and the Earth moves, as it is to say the Earth is at rest and the Sun moves. The mathematics work Either way, the choice of a preferred coordinate system is strictly a matter of convenience. Of a convenience of calculation, nothing more, nothing less. Now, I'd like to stop and ask you a question. Okay. Let us assume, for the sake of argument, that Einstein's physical theory is correct. That there is no experiment that we can use to establish any absolute motion. All we can talk about is relative motion, and you can pick any point you want to be the motionless center, and you can do Einstein's math to get the whole universe to work just fine, no matter what you pick. As I said, let's assume that's true. Nonetheless, I submit to you: in reality, one or the other has to be occurring; both cannot be occurring. It, it is philosophically impossible to say, simultaneously, the sun is at rest and the earth moves, and the earth is at rest and the sun moves. Those two things cannot both be true. Would you agree?
1: Um, okay, for the sake of argument, yes.
0: Okay. So, what we are left with is we either have to admit that physics is incapable of distinguishing between those two cases, right? In okay. which case, we would have to look to a higher domain of knowledge to for example establish whether the earth is the center of the universe or not right because it certainly looks Mm -hmm. like it is uh... we're told that uh... you know newton proved it was going around the sun we know that's not true we know newton had to be tossed Einstein tells us it's just as true to say the earth is going around the sun as vice versa the mathematics works either way i would submit to you that we have to go to a higher knowledge domain. If we want to resolve this in terms of what it means, yeah. are we special in the universe? Is Earth special? It sure seems to be. We don't see you know we don't see any uh, evidence of life on the other planets that we've been able to examine. Yes. Uh, we, we seem to be special in many regards. Are we as special as the ancient cosmology, as the Bible, as the church has always said we are? Or is that a ridiculous superstition that has been completely demolished by science? Well, Mm. we now know
1: that it's certainly not
0: a ridiculous uh, superstition that has been demolished by science. Einstein tells us he can never, in in his physics, he can never give us a definitive answer as to which is going around which. He says there's only relative motion.
1: Yes, Uh, well, that was kind of a cop-out, wasn't it?
0: It is. It's a total. You know, he's like, I, thing.
1: I, I don't have all the answers, and I, I want to be this, you know, stoic, you know, physicist, but I refuse to step across that threshold from physics yeah. to metaphysics.
0: Yeah. Exactly. That's so brilliant. That's so well said. Because remember, back at the time of you know, the Copernican controversy and evolution. For the average guy in the street, guys like us, guys like your listeners, it was absolutely believed by essentially everyone that the Bible was true and the church could not be in error in telling us what the Bible meant. That was essentially the bedrock truth. Well, look at all the
1: trouble that they gave Galileo.
0: Well, exactly, because Galileo was contradicting the interpretation of the Bible that the church had had from the beginning.
1: And, and, and these were the educated authorities.
0: Well, believe me, if you go back and you read this, everybody on this, these were brilliant, brilliant, brilliant everybody understood the science, everybody understood the metaphysics, everybody understood the theology. The difference was, back then, there was a hierarchy of knowledge domains physical science was a branch of philosophy it was called natural philosophy above philosophy you had metaphysics and above metaphysics you had theology and back then the only certain knowledge the only knowledge you could be absolutely sure was true came from theology because it came from god that was how the minds of that era worked our minds worked exactly the opposite now for people today if it's science that we can believe that i mean science is truth Science tells us the way things we got. Metaphysics you now, I mean, come on, everybody has their theology? Are you kidding? That's a bunch of bronze age superstition. So the entire view, the entire way that the human race perceives reality has been completely turned upside down, and I would submit to you that it all begins with Copernicus. Because stop and think about this a second. If you go outside tonight, and you just keep, keep your sleeping back and you lie down and you just watch the stars wheel across the sky all night. Try and put yourself in the mind of what well, if that's what's really happening. Because that's what they believe is happening. That the entire universe was arranged in such a way that where we are is the center and focus of the entire creation. And remember, this was true to them because this was the place where Jesus Christ had become incarnate. It made perfect sense to them. Of course we're the center of the universe. Of course everything is revolving around us because this is the place of the drama of the creation of Adam, the fall, you know, the redemption, all this. This was the story that they told themselves. And it was a profound story. Along comes the And he said, this can't be right. This can't be right, because... You know, when you have planets on these curly Q epicycles and so on, so it doesn't make any sense. But if we put the sun at the center, and we allow the Earth to move around the sun and the other planets at different speeds, now it all makes sense, right? <laughs> and this is a pivotal moment in human history, right? Because when you change cosmology, you change everything. So we went from being the center of the universe to being just another one of the planets, and essentially the entire history of science since then has been a, sig- a-, a series of further demotions of the Earth from any kind of centrality or any kind of significance. First, we were the third planet. Then we found out that you know there were other solar systems. Then we found out there were other galaxies. Then we found out, there were other then we found out good heavens, the universe is like. 14 billion years old, and there's hundreds of billions of galaxies, and hundreds of billions of planets in our galaxy alone. We couldn't possibly be any less the center of anything. And so, this is an, an entire inversion of the way the average guy in the world thinks about who and what we are in the cosmos. But, but
1: certainly, that you can understand why they why they think that way. Of course! When, absolutely. When, when, when we're studying these galaxies and they're moving further and further and further away from us, the whole universe is in motion.
0: Well, that, that's not established. It is widely believed. Now, there's a big difference here that I want to I get across. Usually, people will go with what they think is the most plausible. Uh, I call it the argument from personal plausibility. So oh, that makes sense to me. What you have to learn first when you study the history of science is that the argument for personal plausibility has a terrible, terrible track record. Okay. Because it was just as plausible 500 years ago to look at Galileo and say, You're a madman. You tell me I'm whizzing around the sun at 30 kilometers a second, spinning on my axis. I don't feel it. Do you? And they would laugh. And they would say that they had a justification to laugh because it made perfect sense to them. It satisfied the argument from personal plausibility. Now, just the same thing today. If I tell you that no experiment has ever demonstrated any motion of the Earth, if I tell you that it is overwhelmingly likely, as you see in the film, the principal Max Tegmark makes this argument, it is overwhelmingly likely based on information we already have that we are the only intelligent life, in Max's opinion, anywhere in the observable universe. Well, why is that, Rick?
1: Now, I have to ask. I'm going to ask
0: you. Yeah, think about this now. Okay. Under the assumptions of the present cosmology, there are billions and billions of planets perfectly good for life just in our galaxy alone. Of those billions of planets, billions of them are billions of years older than the Earth. Now, stop and think about this for a second. We flew for the first time under power, Katie Hawk in 1903. Voyager, one of the, well, Pioneer Voyager, one of those, left the solar system for the first time, somewhere around 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. So we went in 110 years from first power flight to exiting the solar system. 110 years. Okay. Think where we're going to be in 100 million years. Think where we're going to be in a billion years. Enrico Fermi, the great physicist at the University of Chicago, uh, he started thinking about this a long time ago, in 1940, he did some calculations, and he realized that under even the most generous assumptions, any civilization that had arisen a billion or two billion years ago on any planet in this galaxy, under any rational assumptions, they should be everywhere. Instead. There's absolutely zero evidence of any of them. And so in Nico Fermi's paradox, they call it the Fermi paradox, is billions of planets, billions of years older, perfectly good for life. Where is it, everybody? And this paradox is really starting to bite now. Because we are seeing planets all over the place, in the Goldilocks zone. Life should be everywhere in this galaxy. And it's not. But again, this is a really interesting thing. Your personal plausibility says, well, of course, there's got to be life out there. Well, 500 years ago, our personal plausibility would have said, of course, there's not the other life out there. God created it here. So you have to be very careful to examine your own assumptions, because there's a big difference, big difference between what you can assume and consider plausible and what you can Demonstrate by repeated crucial experiment. The latter is the only thing that deserves the name science. And the science now is completely freaking the cosmology community out, and that's what my phone is about. We have sent up uh, we set up probes and uh, sensor operations over the last fifteen twenty years to examine. Something called the cosmic microwave background, and the cosmic microwave background was discovered in uh, I think 1967, and it is predicted, actually, by most of the Big Bang theories, that there will be a leftover residue of the what they call the oldest light in the universe, and that over the billions of years, this light, uh, this energy, will have cooled. So today it's barely above absolute zero. And it should be spread all throughout the universe, and it should be absolutely even. There should be no special direction, no up, no down, no left, no right. This light should be the imprint of the Big Bang. And sure enough, they discovered it. And they started, at first they thought this was the absolute proof of the Big Bang. But as so often happens in science, when you start to look more closely at something, the red flags start to pop up and the red flags started to pop up very quickly with the cosmic microwave background what they discovered is that rather than being completely random the cosmic microwave background is picking out in a completely weird way a special direction a preferred direction that runs completely across the universe essentially divides the universe in half but wait there's more In almost a conical, uh... it's almost like god is up there smiling and waving at us that special direction is related in completely incomprehensible ways to us to our local neighborhood here two specific directions that are very special here but should have nothing to do with this incomprehensibly vast universe that couldn't possibly know about us or care about us mm-hmm. these two directions what we call the ecliptic plane, which is the plane that the planets follow as they orbit the sun, and the equinox. And the equinox is that point in the year when the sun intersects the, uh, eclip- the, the ecliptic, the path of the sun uh, intersects the Earth equator. So the Earth equator and the ecliptic of our solar system are built in to the largest structure in the universe, it's pointing out, it's almost like it's impossible. I'm literally, it, it's so stunning that for 20 years, essentially, they've been assuming that it's going to go away. It's got to be a mistake. It's got to be a, you know, some sort of foreground contamination. There's no possible way that the universe on its largest scale can be dividing up along the line of the ecliptic and equinox of Earth. But it is. Okay? And I'm just here to tell your 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 listeners mm-hmm. buckle up because this is going to be as big of a change as the Copernican Revolution because this whole notion of oh the universe is billions and billions of galaxies we could be We are. We are. We are in a ridiculously special place in respect to the largest structures of the cosmos. And to be perfectly honest with you, there's no possibility that, that could be the case in a Big Bang universe. There's just no possibility. The universe is not looking on its largest scales like the result of a Big Bang. Uh, so this is such stupendous, uh, un- uh, stupendously unex- unexpected information that it's going to be very, very carefully checked. It has been. Mm-hmm. Where we stand now is that it is acknowledged in the literature. My phone was carpet-bombed two and a half years ago uh, because I brought this stuff out and put it in front of the
1: public and this was the principle
0: not. yeah the principle and everybody oh you're not you're, trade, you're this you this you that you well two and a half years later you can see the current studies in literature they're all published over on the Cornell University preprint site arxiv.org my favorite website in the world by the way but the literature now frankly admits Frankly, that we see so many other things now besides just this special direction in the cosmic microwave background. This special direction is also lining up galaxies. It's lining up quasars. All kinds of phenomena are lining up around the ecliptic and equinoxes of Earth on the stupendously incomprehensibly larger scales of the observable universe. This is impossible under Big Bang assumption. So, we have one of two choices. Either the Big Bang cosmology is done, and that's what I think. I think it's done. I think our children will not be taught uh, Big Bang cosmology, because it will be impossible to teach. The other possibility is that somehow or other, essentially every major cosmology survey of the past several decades is being contaminated by some unknown systematic or observational error or a foreground that we can't discover that is somehow making all these different things look like they're lining up around the ecliptic and equinoxes mm-hmm. of Earth. So for the next five years, all they're going to be doing is desperately trying to identify what that systematic error or foreground might be. Well, I actually to seven seven to that.
1: Years, I, I actually oh, yeah. look, look forward to that. Um, oh, me we, too? so so let's 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 push a little here cuz cuz i've 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 listened and i can see where a, a lot of this actually makes sense but but let me push you just a little bit here sure we send spacecraft out into space let's say we're shooting for uh, we're going to send people to mars to colonize okay. mars now we have to make systematic judgments of where is mars going to be on said launch date and if we launch today we're going to continuously have to make adjustments to that trajectory to hit that planet because that planet isn't going to just sit there and politely wait for that rocket to arrive that planet is moving around something is it moving around earth is it moving around the Sun Because we use the sun as our benchmark.
0: Oh, we do. But again, it's really important to keep in mind that in any situation where we are dealing with a reference frame, the choice of reference frame is strictly and solely a matter of convenience of calculation.
1: If I am sailing
0: a ship and I want to go from New York to, um, you know, uh, Caracas, Venezuela, right? The easiest way for me to get there is to assume that the entire universe is revolving around Earth, and I take my readings from the stars, and I assume the Earth is stationary. It's called navigation. Yes. And we've been doing it for thousands of years. It, perfect, it works perfectly, even though we assume everything's going around the Earth, right? but it yields the necessary calculations. Now, if I want to go to Mars, the calculations become much easier if we assume that the center of our coordinates is the sun, and we calculate the orbits, and we assume that the Earth is moving in orbit. But again, this is nothing other, according to Einstein, this is nothing more and nothing other than simply a convenient way of doing the math easier. Einstein insists, and he's right, by the way, that you could do the math if you assumed the Earth was at rest and the planets were orbiting the sun and the whole shebang was orbiting the Earth once per day. The math exists to fly that spacecraft and land it on Mars. It's just a whole heck of a lot harder to do from that frame. But now let's go even further. If we look out not just at Mars, But now we're looking at the entire universe, the universe on its largest scales. It actually turns out to be easier to do the math if we assume that the ecliptic and equinoxes of Earth are preferred directions in the sky. It's amazing. So the argument that we can land a spacecraft on Mars by assuming that Mars and Earth are both in orbit around the sun proves absolutely nothing other than that the math is easier to do. Uh Einstein says the math could be done no matter what point in the universe you pick as a center. And these choices of calculation are strictly done, just like the guy who's sailing from New York to Venezuela, he chooses a frame in which the Earth is motion because mm-hmm. the calculations are easier to do. Now the the sun itself though
1: has certain Characteristics, uh, you know, just like our, our faces. You know, my nose is here, my ears are back here, you know, my, my hair is partially missing. Mine um, too. <laughs> well, why is it, though, that we're able to actually map the sun if we're not moving around it and know where all of its unique characteristics are?
0: Well, because the sun is, 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 is rotating on its axis. There's no question about that. Uh, we, we observe the sun to rotate upon its axis. For sure the sun is not motionless in the sense that we know it is rotating upon its axis. So we see that. Uh, the question becomes, and this is, this is the issue, um, according to Newtonian physics, if all that existed in the whole wide universe With the sun and the planets, guess what? There is absolutely no question that the Earth would be going around the sun. Mm -hmm. No question. But Ernst Mach, back in the middle of the 19th century, made a very important observation. He said, you know what? You're ignoring the rest of the universe here. The universe does not just consist in the sun and the planets. There is some ridiculously huge number of stars out there. And the rotating masses of those stars could just as easily be providing the gravitational effects that we attribute to our local sun. And this is a hugely controversial uh, idea, and it was a hugely influential idea upon Einstein, by the way. Because when Einstein was doing his math, for the general relativity theory, one of the things that fell out of that theory was that Mount Mach was right, that in fact the effects, the gravitational effects of all of the different stars and systems in the universe must be taken into account when solving the equations for things like Coriolis force, centrifugal force here, the fact that if you shoot a bullet on Earth, this, what they call the spin of the Earth, will mm-hmm. divert the bullet in a certain direction. Well, guess what? What mock proved and, and, and hans Turing did with did the actual math, the actual Einstein equations in 1921 and proved that that bullet would divert exactly the same way if the Earth was at rest and the cosmos was rotating around it. A Foucault mm-hmm. pendulum. You know, if, if you go up to Griffith Park Observatory here in Los Angeles, you'll see this pendulum. And they say that this is an absolute proof of the rotation of the Earth. Well, that's nonsense. It's not. Because it was shown in 1921, rigorously, by the Einstein equation. So the important thing to keep in mind is that the great revolution that occurred in physics at the beginning of the 20th century with Einstein was a recognition that Newton had made a mistake, as a mistake in assumption about... He called space the absolute frame, that you could determine absolute motion by means of referring to everything as objects moving around in this absolute space. That's wrong. We can't ignore the rest of the universe. And Einstein's physics is predicated on the idea that the Foucault pendulum will be dragged around precisely the same way whether Earth is rotating once per day on its axis or whether it is motionless and at rest in the center of the universe, and the universe is rotating around it once per day. Physics cannot distinguish between those two conditions. That's a pretty remarkable thing, isn't it?
1: Well, it it, it is, but but let me poke a hole in it, Um, Rick. um, Being a law enforcement officer, I know that if I have an assailant that is shooting me, shooting at me, and if I stay still, I'm going to get hit. Now, let's expand that you know, to a planetary scale. If We, we know that asteroids are coming at us all the time. Mm-hmm. Some of them we worry about, some of them we don't. The ones that we worry about is because we know that we are, if we're moving at a certain rate of speed, we're going to be right in the path of that asteroid.
0: Well, the, the point is this thing. I understand this is hard to get, but it's crucial we would be in exactly the same danger if we were standing still at the center of the universe and that asteroid was following a trajectory that would accord with what our eyes tell us if we look up and we watch the stars wheel across the sky every night if that were really happening Mm -hmm. we would still see that asteroid and we would still see every night it would be a little bit closer and every night the trajectory that it was following if it didn't change would impact the earth the same situation would apply under either set of circumstances. I, the physics uh, are exactly the same. I I, I don't see it.
1: Uh, explain it to me. I don't. I don't. See okay, it. sure.
0: Okay. Forget everything that you think you know, and go only by what your eyes tell you. What your eyes tell you is the sun goes around the earth once per day, right? Mm-hmm. And what your eyes tell you is the stars go across the sky once per night. Okay. So you're, 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 you're an astronomer now, and you've got a telescope, and you've picked up an asteroid. And you can only see it at night, because when the sun's in the sky, you can't see it. So every night, you go out, and you plot the location of that asteroid. And you do it at the same time every night, because you know that over the course of the night, that asteroid is going to move completely across the sky with the rest of the stars, right? Mm -hmm. So you pick one time every night and you take the observation and you notice that it's getting closer to us every day. And you plot that trajectory and you realize that in 14 days at present speed and present vector, it's going to hit us, right? Sure. That observation is true whether the Earth is standing still or not. Because our eyes are reporting to us a Earth that's standing still, and a universe that's rotating around it once per day, and objects have their own proper motions with respect to that daily rotation.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, I, I'm following you, but why do we not? Oh, never mind.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a huge I, concept. I just had it? an aha moment. Yeah, well, that's great because I it took me a long time to get it, too. Uh, now, here's the thing. The argument from personal plausibility can you're a cop right yes, if I if, if, if I were to try to explain to you that I wasn't really shooting at you uh, it just looked that way because you were standing still I probably wouldn't get very far with you now would I So the argument from personal plausibility comes in here and says okay yeah yeah he's got a point. The, the geometry works out under either assumption. yeah, I'll grant you that but come on now man. I mean, let's be real. Everything we observe in the universe is rotating and orbiting. Nothing in the universe is standing still. Why in the heck should we grant you the slightest bit of credibility for seriously trying to claim that the Earth is really standing still at the center of the universe? That's ridiculous. Now, that's really where we're at now. Mm. Because the physics, we won the war in physics in 1911 uh... the geocentric system is perfectly compatible with Einstein's physics but the argument from personal plausibility is a much tougher kettle of fish yeah well because our assumptions is so deeply embedded but but you You can see
1: where a lot of this uh, a lot of the resistance is coming from
0: absolutely because at the end of the day the deepest I don't want to say conditioning, because that has a negative well.
1: A uh, well, let's just be intellectually honest, Rick. I mean, uh, from your point of view, it, it has been, you know, about 10,000 it it
0: years of conditioning. It is, it is the most stupendous act of deep conditioning in the history of the world.
1: And, and here's why I, I'm not afraid to call it conditioning. Um, it, it is, you know, um, let's put ourselves back about Oh, let's just go back maybe a thousand years ago. This discussion that we're having now would be considered heresy, and and, and we would be oh, yeah. in, in front of the church.
0: Oh, um, five hundred years
1: ago, you know Galileo, years ago. Galileo was in front of the church, and they're like, "You need to mm-hmm. stop this. You need to stop it now because it's radical Perfect. thinking." Um, but what you've done is is unique in today's culture, and and I'm going to kind of take the wheel here for just a moment. Go. Um You have actually produced and written a a movie, and have laid out an an entire plan. I mean, it's it's a brilliant, brilliant movie, and and I gotta I gotta give you a lot of credit, Rick. Uh, you brought some of the heroes out. Um, uh, I'm kind of gushing here for just a moment. When I saw Michio Kaku, this has got to, and I'm pounding the table. This has got to be true. This has got to be true. He's got Michio on the show. Uh, Kate Mulgrew, you know, narrated the show. I mean, you brought out the, you know, this was an, an extravaganza of of physicists, and it it presents a hell of a lot of credibility. And and what we have just been talking here, you know, the last forty seven minutes is. It makes a hell of a lot of sense. Now it kind of makes us look a little unicentric.
0: Ah, good work, good work.
1: <laughs> oh, it is. Um, you know, everything centers around us. You know, kind of like my daughter. Uh, but we can edit that out. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Actually, I probably won't. Uh, but, but now after you presented this movie and and listen for the listeners I've I've watched it and it is a it it is a spectacular movie if you want something that's going to challenge the way you think challenge the way you see things challenge your place in the universe and do it in an almost polite way Rick Would it would that be fair
0: I tried very hard to be extremely fair to all, to all of the participants and let them speak for themselves.
1: Yeah, it was, it was very, very fair. Um, and, and very... Well, it, it was very correct. I, I, I couldn't have done it better myself. Now, I am no writer or producer. I only play one on TV. But... Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, the, the movie was excellent.
0: But after oh, I thank you very much. I, I appreciate that very much.
1: Well, but after the movie, Rick, you uh, you were like a B fifty two bomber over Berlin in the final days. Yeah, uh, you you started catching flak. Um, let's talk about that for just a little bit. Let's talk about the controversy over these thoughts mm-hmm. and and over your your your. Oh, I'm looking for a special word for it because it wasn't your work. This was a a production. Th- this was something of of beauty. Your your art.
0: Well, it was, and uh, you know, we were very fortunate to attract not only some brilliant uh, cosmologists and physicists, but some of the top um, creative talent in the world uh, worked on this film for a tiny fraction of what they would normally charge because they were fascinated by it. And we were the beneficiaries. But here's what happened. A a small number of people who knew me and knew my partner, the executive producer, Robertson Jennings, uh, these people had been in you know, vicious warfare with my partner for years. And took this opportunity when we finally put the trailer up in spring of 2014 they started tweeting guys like Michio guys like Lawrence Krauss guys like gals like Kate Mulgrew and essentially the tweet said hey do you guys know that you have just been tricked that you have been tricked by a bunch of crazed geocentrists and they have cut you to make it sound like you believe in geocentrism and boy, Katie barred the door. That thing took off like—I mean, in one day. Lawrence Krauss came out and said, "I don't remember being in this film, and I have no idea how they got a hold of my footage. And they probably just stole it off the internet." And then Kate Morgan came out and said, "I had no idea what this was about. If I would have only known uh, what it was about, I never would have had anything to do." And this was just—this took off like a rocket. Uh, at one point it was the third highest trending story on the world wide web and the story was always the same story. Crazed geocentrists, trick and dupe, the leading physicists in the world appearing mm. in a film that makes it look like they believe in geocentrism.
1: I, now, I saw that.
0: Yeah, that was a compelling story and obviously it was far too good to be subjected to any inconvenient things like checking the facts. What's interesting about that is that Nobody called me. NPR put Lawrence Krauss on to say, I was never in this film. They stole it from the Internet. uh," Well, that's an easy thing to check.
1: Well, you have the -the behind-the-scenes video. How dare
0: he lie? I have it. Of course (laughs) I do. And I had a signed release form from Lawrence Krauss. I have the raw footage. Of course he sat for my cameras. Of course he was in my film. Nobody called me. Now, we talk about fake news today. Uh, I have had a visceral and very, very real experience of what fake news is. Fake news is when somebody makes a claim that even the most basic and cursory logical examination would show to be false, but nobody checks because they'd rather go with the narrative than with the actual investigation of the claims. Of course, Wunschcraft's pretty new film. Poor Kate, God bless her. Love her to death, by the way. She did a magnificent job on the It is absurd for her to claim that she did not know what it was about. She read the script for a month before she took the job. I sent her the scientific papers that we referenced in writing the script. She spent mm-hmm. a month going over those. It is absurd on its face. It is, in fact, an insult to your and my intelligence to say that these people didn't know these are the smartest guys in the world they talked to me for hours and hours and hours with a camera running
1: now let's pause right here because this word this is important are you willing to say right now to a listening audience of intelligent people and you are willing to say without reservation that everybody that starred in this movie and spoke in this movie, they knew exactly what they were talking about, the topic, and how controversial that it may be.
0: I absolutely am, and I would encourage anybody who has the slightest doubt about this to uh, to just Google Thought Crime, the conspiracy to stop the principle. Uh, this is a free 20-minute mini-doc that we put up. It shows the release forms. The release forms specifically set producer, um, um, interviewer acknowledges that producer intends to seek out even controversial and non-mainstream theories of cosmology for entertainment and educational Mm -hmm. purposes. Every single one of them. And much more importantly than that, the film is an examination, by the way, the very first one ever, which is amazing, of the Copernican principle, the foundational idea that brings the modern world into existence. These guys talked to us for hours. The questions were always, like for example, um, in Thought Crime, you'll see some outtakes where I was reading a quote that Lawrence Krauss had made mm-hmm. uh, about this CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background we were talking about earlier. Right and at the end of this quote, Lawrence Krauss said, that's crazy that would mean we were truly the center of the universe. I read that quote to Max Stegmark from the 19th, Mm -hmm. and he responded, and it's in the film, I don't think this is telling us we're the center of the universe. So everybody knew what we were talking about, and everybody had a chance to state their views, and they're all included in the film. In other words, the entire assault on the principle was a complete Insult to the intelligence, and here's the most important thing to keep in mind: none of the scientists had seen the film when they commented on it, and none of the journalists had seen the film when they commented on it. Which is why it's so interesting. Now people see the film and they realize this is ridiculous. If they would have bothered to watch the film first, uh, they wouldn't have embarrassed themselves with with, with, with such uh, absurdities uh, as they as they spread throughout the world wide web. Now this hurt us badly, blew us out of theaters. Well, but it's. interesting yeah, In the long run, it is now working to our advantage Because I, I go on the web, I do interviews like this one with you And people, boy, this is interesting, I think I'll check this out And they go watch the film And when they watch the film, they go for 100% sure That the entire, what I call the Captain Janeway and the Seven Cosmologists media <laughs> fairy tale Was in fact a media fairy tale This is interesting, it makes the film very, very dangerous because we have the leading physicists and cosmologists in the world speaking honestly about things that they typically will not discuss to the uninitiated uh, it, it becomes very dangerous so. yeah.
1: if i can make an unfair you know, <laughs> comparison here you are the milo yiannopoulos of <laughs> physics
0: <laughs> exactly no, we are uh, we are very much uh, an unwelcome guest in the marketplace of ideas.
1: You know, because I, I thought about it last night. You know, you and I spoke last last night, and 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 I want this to to stay in the audio. Um, we we spoke quite a bit. We spoke what about 20, 30 minutes about the the film and about the controversy. And you know, both of us were very honest about it. And sometimes, you know, Al and I we get hit you know in the comments you know well, why didn't you ask the hard questions and why didn't you push him on this well you know sometimes we do and and we have pushed just a little bit on 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 poor rick here
0: That's but but no problem man i appreciate it listen oh well uh, there's, the, a, there's a wonderful there's a wonderful saying extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence i'm making an extraordinary claim i yeah. fully understand you would not be serving your listeners If you did not ask that question, like, hey, wait a minute, how can we get to Mars? That's a damn good question. It's an important question. It's a fair question. I'm glad you asked it because I want to have your listeners experience what's really at stake here, what's really going on, because I'm telling you right now, the Big Bang Cosmology, in my opinion, it has already been observationally falsified. Mm-hmm. The only way that it stands up another five years is if they find out that every observation they've done over the past 20 years is somehow contaminated in some way they can't possibly even imagine. Yes. I don't think that's the case. So I am telling your, your listeners, hey, here's a heads up. One of the biggest changes in our view of ourselves and our place and our significance in the cosmos is at hand. And now is exactly the right time. to start thinking about what kind of an impact these changes are going to have on our culture and the kind Mm -hmm. of world that we create for our children. These are big questions. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I I said all that to to say this, you know, after I went to bed last night and and give it a lot of thought, you know, as laying there thinking about our discussion, and whether or not these scientists believed Uh, you know let's just get belief out of the equation they were presented with a script and and here's here's an idea here's here's what I think are you willing to support this or not and are you willing to go on camera or not and talk about it and they did Is not and and and, you know I, I know I'm I sound like I'm reversing myself, but deal with it for just a moment. Sure. Is not the whole idea of science is to take novel ideas and either prove them or disapprove them and discuss them. And if that discussion doesn't meet the approval of the populace, then so be it. It's science.
0: Absolutely true. I mean, I am. When it comes to philosophy of science, I am a, a a follower of Karl Popper, Sir Karl Popper. And for Karl Popper, science is has one preeminent, incredibly powerful thing that it does better than any other form of human knowledge. Science is that awesome tool by which we subject what we think we know about the physical aspects of reality to experimental test with the intention of possibly falsifying what we think we know. That is the rigor and beauty and terrible awesomeness of the scientific method. Now, what we run up against, especially in cosmology, because remember, cosmology is everything. The subject of cosmology is everything in the freaking universe. Where it came from and where it's going. That's a pretty big subject. Right. When you start challenging the cosmology of the civilization, look what happened to medieval Christendom. There's a reason the Mm popes were freaked out by Galileo. They knew that if these ideas took course, then the entire basis of the Christian revelation was undermined. We're not the center. This universe wasn't created for us. They saw that the adoption of this new cosmology would completely undermine the logical coherence of the Christian revelation. Right. The same, it's almost like the shoe is on the other foot now. We've come full circle. If science has had it wrong for 500 years, in its basic assumption, which is that the earth is neither special nor central nor significant, if they've had that wrong for 500 years, they are in exactly the same position that the church was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and the shift ahead could be equally
1: huge. Well, now, now, out of fairness, I, I gotta ask this, Rick. Were the, these scientists who, in in essence, were putting their reputations, and not their careers? They were all very, very well established scientists. Um, and I, I keep picking on Kaku because he's uh, he's just an absolute superhero to me they were putting their reputations on the line to speak uh, in during this movie were they ever given the opportunity to disagree with you on the film and let that be in the final cut
0: Well, every single disagreement with the premise of the film the premise of the film is is the Copernican principle false is the fundamental idea of the Western scientific method that earth is not the center of anything and that Earth is neither significant nor special in the larger scheme of things. Every single statement that was made to support the existing Copernican principle was included for the simple reason that it made for a really good movie. To me, the thing that makes the principle special is the intellectual back and forth. Lawrence Krauss, for example, is Mm -hmm. completely committed to the Copernican principle and has 15 roundhouse punches in the film. Uh, Michio, on the other hand, is a multiverse
1: theorist. He's stringy. Oh yes, and oh boy, I could talk uh, hours about that.
0: Yeah. So, and obviously, the only way to say the Copernican principle, assuming the observations we cover in the film are correct, and I believe they are, they have stood up now for 15 years. Uh, assuming that those observations are correct, the only way. To salvage the Copernican principle is to assume, yeah, this universe looks pretty designed. Yeah, this universe seems the earth seems to be in a really special place, but that's because this is just one in an infinity of other universes. We just happen to get lucky and live in this one. So that's Michio's, um resolution, and he says it right in the film. He says, "There's nothing special about humans." As a matter of fact, it's possible that even our universe is only one among many. That's right in the film. So yes, of that? course, they all be their point.
1: And and what's wrong with the idea that maybe maybe out there is a universe where we're not so lucky?
0: Well, that's a crucial question in science. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. A number of problems in the Big Bang have been very very difficult to solve, and one of them is what they call the horizon problem. The universe is assumed to have been expanding for thirteen point eight billion the, years. Yes, in all we're directions,
1: we're spreading out. And, we're, we're the. And the we're speed the ex- of
0: light is not fast enough for the light on one side of the universe to have communicated with the light on the other side of the universe. Yet, when we look at the cosmic microwave background, it is almost the same everywhere you look, and that's a real problem. How could the initial conditions have been communicated across these vast distances when the speed of light is supposedly the limit at which information can be conveyed? And a theory was put forward in the late 90s called inflation. And one of the interesting things about inflation is that if you grant inflation, the mechanism that launches inflation is mathematically certain to continue eternally once you get it started it never stops it keeps inflating it keeps inflating, it keeps inflating. It keeps... and the implication here is that what we see out there is only one bubble in an infinity of other bubbles and this is where Michio comes in because he's a string theorist and he used the mathematics of cosmic eternal inflation to derive the idea that any conditions that exist in this universe that might lead us to think that we are special that's an illusion Mm -hmm. because there's a billion trillion quadrillion infinity of other universes where we're not and here's the thing and this is crucial just this week the current issue of scientific american has an absolutely stunning article The article is entitled, Pop Goes the Universe. It's written by three of the leading inflation theorists in the world. Uh, 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 Steinhardt from Princeton, Andre Lind, and one other guy. I can't remember his name right now. But these are three of the biggest guns in cosmology. And what the import of this article, I cannot even begin to tell you how stunned I was when I read this article. The article basically is telling us that inflation is a falsified theory, that observations have falsified.
1: Oh, no. Come on.
0: and, And that inflation, not only is it falsified, but that because inflation is falsified, we no longer have a workable cosmology. The Big Bang cosmology cannot work without inflation. And without inflation we have no cosmology and they say right at the end of the argument, they say cosmology is wide open and i believe that and i believe that within five to seven years it will be generally acknowledged in the popular press that we have no cosmology the story we have told ourselves that has shaped all of our lives at the most fundamental level about a big bang and a universe that's expanding 13.8 billion years and we're nothing special and we're a pale blue These stories are so widely believed, and they're false. The question becomes, what is next? And I think the thing that makes the principle such an interesting film is we go back to the fork in the road that begins the modern world, Copernicus, the idea we're not the center. And we propose that it is absolutely imperative now, the observations require us, to consider the possibility that in fact we are in a special, privileged, yes, even central location in the cosmos. And that has the potential to change the world at least as much as Copernicus changed it in the 16th century.
1: Now, would it be fair to say, you know, you having said that and with the passion that you said it, would it be fair to say that we're in this special place because a personal God out there created this for us, loves us, and wanted us to be the center of his creation?
0: Bingo, you have just basically said what the Catholic Church taught unanimously from the very beginning up until the seventeenth century. But this it seems to be un- what question- you're saying. Yeah, it is what I'm saying. Um This is not a scientific statement, by the way, so I want to be very careful. The statements I'm about to make do not belong to the realm of physical science. They belong to the realm of metaphysics and theology. But the evidence that is pointing to this is scientific in nature. We are seeing the universe lining up on its incomprehensibly largest scales around us. Now, that is not predicted by the Big Bang. That is, however, predicted by the ancient cosmology, the ancient geocentric cosmology. So, science has given us a reason to step back and examine this question from higher domains of knowledge, metaphysics and theology. The average guy in the street, when Copernicus came along and convinced the average guy in the street that the Bible was wrong and the church had been wrong, the earth was not the center of the universe that began, an inexorable decline of the status of the Christian religion in the Western world. And it continues to this day. I submit, in exactly the same way, the average guy in the street, if it is established that the Earth, in fact, divides the universe, I submit that the average guy in the street is going to conclude quite reasonably that somebody must have put it there. And at that point, we really are looking at A design universe, a profoundly compelling uh, metaphysical argument for the necessary existence of God, and a profoundly compelling um, and unexpected series of observational evidences that, in important ways, the ancient geocentric cosmology seems to be a more correct understanding of the way the universe is, than
1: our present Big Bang Cosmology. So, okay, let me me bring the two worlds together here. Because that feels to me, this is just Kevin speaking, a spiritual statement. And yet, scientists that have been in your movie, The Principle, they like to remain clinical. Would you say that The principle is a blending of both worlds.
0: Well, what I think the principle is, the principle is primarily and fundamentally an examination of a metaphysical idea that has been foundational to the scientific method. And that idea is called the Copernican principle, and it's just an assumption is accepted in advance, That we're not the center of everything, that we're not special, that we're not unique observers. That is the one idea that has to be true if our present cosmology is to be true. If that idea is false, then our present cosmology is false. Now, that nothing that I have said so far is anything other than a scientific assessment. Now I want to go beyond science, because science can tell us what the the telescopes see science cannot tell us yes. what it means. Sci- yes, science
1: can, science can tell us what, but they can't tell us why.
0: Exactly. So what we have to do now is you know, give them five, seven more years. They, they deserve five to seven more years to get their next generation of telescopes up and check this all one more time. I fully agree with that. But I'm telling you right now, it's going to stand up. <laughs> when it does, all science can tell us is that Earth is in a very remarkably special, even central location in the cosmos. It cannot tell us what that means. A scientist can always say, hmm, what a coincidence, and leave it right there. Nothing more to be said. Hey, there's only one universe we can see. We happen to be in the center of this one. That's highly unusual, but, hey, it's a coincidence. You're always able to take that out. But I submit to you that Man in the Street will not. Man in the Street, if we're the center of the universe... It's not a scientific statement to say, therefore, somebody put it there. That's a metaphysical statement, but I think it's a very compelling one. It is overwhelmingly likely to be the most plausible interpretation of this stunningly unexpected evidence, if I am right about that. We are about to exit a period of history that saw the continued and accelerating decline of the influence of the Christian religion on the West, the civilization that it created. Let's face it, the Christian religion created Western civilization. But since Galileo, its trajectory has been downward, and especially over the last generation or two, it has been accelerating downward. I believe that is coming to an end. I believe the pendulum is about to start from back the other way, and it's very difficult, of course, to predict exactly how and when, but one of the things I want to examine in the follow-up to the principle is, what do we make of this? Okay, so we have this science now, but what does it mean? What will it mean? Yes. What kind of civilization are we going to create for ourselves if it becomes clear that the Earth is somehow the center and focus of this incredibly vast universe? That's going to be an interesting That's going to be an interesting thing to see.
1: Now, why can't, um, this is just us guys talking, um, why can't the two worlds get along, science and religion? It, it seems like they're both coming to the same conclusions, and, and very, very quickly.
0: Well, here, real real simple. At the end of the day, it is about power. Uh, the Catholic Church used to run the world. The Catholic Church could burden you, if you dare, to challenge them in an area where they considered it to be Civilization threatening, they would burn you. Okay, right? uh, and uh, I see why because they they understood the implications of Copernicus that it would undermine the entire logical consistency of the of the Christian revelation. The same thing applies here. There are too many Nobel prizes on too many walls. There are too many grants. There are too many um, uh, institutions, academic institutions, where the prestige of that institution depends entirely upon the maintenance of the present cosmology and particle physics, etc. It's about power. Because the single greatest power in the world is not military power. It's not economic power. The single greatest power in the world is the power to tell the young the creation story of who and what they are in the universe. Because all of the data of their lives will be interpreted through that mesh that's the greatest power in the world, and I think that there's very, very powerful inducements on the side of the uh, materialist conception of reality that has been so successful over the past. World. Let's face it, science has had a great run, but it is at the, at the end of that run. We have reached a dead end. The attempt to describe the universe mathematically in terms solely of physical forces determined has failed. We cannot describe the universe that way that opens the door to a return to an examination of those domains of knowledge which have been excluded from that enterprise the domains of metaphysics and the domain of theology and they're coming back
1: do you think that they'll ever come together
0: oh absolutely i do because you see science at the end of the day science is a an outcome of catholic metaphysics it was the work of aquinas and, and, and other theologians who established the idea that the universe was ordered, predictable, and knowable because it was the product of an intelligence? That was a stupendously important thing. That brick had to be in the foundation before you could have a scientific method. So, scientific method emerges from that work that the Catholic metaphys- metaphysicists and theologians did in the Middle Ages to purport to establish grounds for discovering the lawful principles by which the universe operates (laughs) it's like the the daughter that grew up to be stronger than the mother in a way science was the daughter of catholic metaphysics and in a way it grew up to be stronger than the mother but at the end of the day if that daughter finds herself unable to complete the structure the structure cannot stand she's going to go back to mom and she's going to say okay I don't want you burning me in the stake anymore. (laughs) I don't want you, but you have some wisdom here that might be useful to me in attempting to somehow salvage a complete and accurate description of reality. What am I missing? And I believe that that is where you have the potential to have a new golden age. Um, The universe does not not reduce to physical forces. There's more to it than that. There just is. And... I think that more and more scientists and physicists are already beginning to recognize this. They're going to be very touchy about any attempts to slide God in the back door, because this is science we're talking about. You don't have to pray the light's going to go on when you throw the switch. You don't have to pray the cell phone's going to link up with the the cell tower. And they don't want to give that up, and they shouldn't give that up, because that's a, a legitimate domain of autonomy for the scientific method. But above that domain, of the of what does this mean? How does this affect what it means to be human? Science cannot answer those questions in the absence of the influence of metaphysics and theology.
1: Correct. Well, um, so what's next for Rick?
0: Well, uh, we are we are rapidly approaching the point where I hope I'd say that the chances are much better than fifty fifty. That the principle is actually going to be available to everybody in the world who wants to see it by the end of this year. We've had a long fight. Uh, I thank every, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who buy this home and continue to buy it and share it with their friends and selling. So I hope to get to the point where this prince the, the principle will have broken the uh, the quarantine and will be available for anyone to see. Now, anyone can see this film by just going to our website, The principal Movie. That's principle com. You can get it on DVD, Blu-ray, you can stream it, you can go to iTunes, Amazon. Uh, But by the end of this year, I expect it's going to be on essentially every major cable, satellite, uh, streaming, uh, subscriber-based service. You're going to be able to see this. Once that's done, we want to make the Principle 2. And uh, we're talking right now to investors about uh, about putting that into production this year.
1: Oh, that's awesome. What is going to be the uh, premise of Principle 2, if you don't mind me asking?
0: Well, this is where I want to, we we want to review the incredible development, scientific development, since we finished the principle. That will take probably the first 15 to 20 minutes of the film. And then what I want to do is I want to look at what does this mean? Not just what does the science say, but what are we as a species going to make of that in the story we tell our children about who and what we are? in the universe. So I want to speak to philosophers this time. I want to speak to some theologians this time. I want to speak to scientists this time who are grappling with these issues. And the real question I want to ask is, how is this going to change our civilization? So that's what I want the principal two to examine.
1: Oh now that's exciting. <laughs> you, yeah. You've got to keep us you, you've got to keep us informed of what's going on, Rick.
0: <laughs> oh man, I would love to and thank you. This has really been one of my favorite interviews. I really appreciate it. Let's get together and talk again a little bit further down the line.
1: Uh, Absolutely. But, Rick, thank you so much for being on the House of Mystery.
0: My pleasure. God bless. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you very, very much.
0: To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com